God's holiness requires that he disciplines his people and that he judges the lost. We live in a day where it's common to sacrifice God's holiness on the altar of grace. And we meet these Christians who say, well, you know, we're under grace. We have freedom in Christ. You have freedom to live holy, as I do. Not to live a double life. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. For the last week, we have been in a series on morality and moral excellence, and today is part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Reaping Moral Compromise. Pastor Carl will explain in detail that God's holiness requires that he disciplines his people and that he judges sin. Please join us in the book of Genesis chapter 38 as we continue. And there are cults today that mix sexual immorality with so-called worship. So she knew her father-in-law well enough to know that here was a sensual guy. He could be a candidate for my services. So she tries to trick him. And of course, we read here in verse 15, not knowing who she was, she's propositioned. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. The veil was a customary device that a prostitute would use, not for modesty as some women do in the Bible, but to seduce a man. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? Now, that was the price of her services. But she wants to frame the man. She wants some security in lieu of the fact that he is going to delay payment. He offers her a young goat. He doesn't have it with her, so I I want some guarantee. I want a pledge. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, verse 18, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So he indulges himself. He gets up and leaves, minus his ring. His ring was, it was like they would put it on typically a cord around your neck, or you could wear it on your finger. And the signet you would use in business transactions, you would put it into wax. They have found some ancient signets. It's like a fingerprint. No question who it belongs to. He leaves his signet, he leaves the cord that would be around his neck, and he leaves his staff where they would indeed carve identifying marks. Then she arose and departed, removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So he wants to make payment. He especially wants his ring back and his staff. Verse 31, his friend goes, he asks the man of, he asks the man of her place saying, where is the temple prostitute who is by the road of Enam? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Uh, The Hebrew text literally says he asked, where is the Kadesha, 
that is this sacred prostitute. And here was this woman who, like a typical Canaanite would do as an act of worship to the Canaanite goddess of love, she would give herself. There's no such woman here. I don't know what you're talking about. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, you know, I'm a man of integrity. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. The only thing he is concerned about is how people perceive him. Not that he had sinned against the living God. But ultimately, your sins will find you out. You will reap what you sow. For God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. So he's ignited this time bomb, which brings us thirdly to Judah's pretended virtue. Judah's pretended virtue. Three months come and go, and I'm sure by this time the incident is far from his mind. Why? Because he has a calloused and sensitive conscience. We're told in verse 24. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. Behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. This in his mind will conveniently solve the problem because he had put off for years giving his younger son in live right marriage. Bring her out. Bring that wretch out. We're going to burn her. It's pretty hard to find a greater hypocrite than this guy in Scripture. I mean, you talk about a double standard. Like so many people, he's quick to judge somebody else without judging himself. You should put out in the margin next to this verse, Romans 2, 1 and 2. I have a whole sermon just on those two verses, Romans 2, 1 and 2. You see, the only difference between him and Tamar is that he had been caught. Or she had been caught and he had not. So he's thinking, where is that immoral woman? We're going to burn her. That's what people do who are typically caught up in a sin. They are hard on people who are guilty of the same sin. So a liar is hard on people who lie. An immoral person is hard on someone who's immoral. A gossip will always be harder on the person who's a gossip. And so as the executioners hurry off to get Tamar, we read in verse 25, it was while she was being brought out. Maybe she said, hold it, wait a minute. I want to incriminate my partner who was involved with me. Oh, this will be interesting. All the rubberneckers, they want to find out who it is. While she was being brought out, that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cord and staff are these. She had reason to believe that for all of Judah's problems, he would withhold his so-called justice, especially if the same justice needed to be brought down on his head. Verse 26, Judah recognized them. His sin had found him out. He recognized him and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. 
and he did not have relations with her again. Judah knew he had been tried and found wanting. He knew he was guilty. He knew he had been caught with his hand in the bag, so to speak. He knew that she was more righteous than he was because he was doubly guilty of both adultery and his refusal to give his son Sheila in marriage. And none of this ever would have happened if he had just obeyed God. Now that brings us finally to Judah and his seed. Judah and his seed. Now, as you read the closing paragraph, you might think it's rather obscure and really not all that important, but it's critically important. Uh, first, when we think about Judah's offspring or his seed, Judah's seed pictures God's realism. Judah's seed pictures God's realism. We read now in verse 27, it came about at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. As it turns out, instead of bearing one son, She's going to have twins. God had taken away two of Judah's sons, but now in his sovereignty, he's going to give two sons back to continue the line and tribe of Judah. Messiah is promised to come from the tribe of Judah. And if they end up being wiped out, how can it happen? The line of Judah is going, as you read in the New Testament, to come through Tamar. She's really just an expression of how real and powerful and involved God is in the lives of his people. Now, he doesn't know it yet because it's not until his father, Jacob, is there on his bedside and he brings in all the son and gives each of them a blessing. He doesn't know that of the 12 tribes, God is going to choose him and his tribe. By the way, this guy comes around, he repents, and he gets his life right. God is going to choose his tribe to bring the promised Messiah from. Listen to these words from Genesis 49 in verse 10. There we read, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh, that's a title for the Messiah, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh the Messiah will come in one aspect of his reign at his second coming, is he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. We look at the mess our world is in. I'm telling you, Jesus is going to come back, and he is going to fix it, and he's going to remove every unbeliever off the planet, and only those who have been born again will enter the kingdom of God. Now, some will enter in their natural bodies, and they'll have children and children and children and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and their children will have to make decisions for Christ, just like your children need to. My children are not Christians because I am. God has children and he has no grandchildren. But a day is coming when Messiah will rule and this world will see what God originally intended before sin entered into the world. God is so alive, he's so real. He knows Er is gone. He knows that Onan is gone and all that's left is Sheila. And Sheila is not a suitable candidate to, be, to bring offspring for the Messiah's line. Do you know how real God is? I love Hebrews 11 and verse 6. It says, And without faith is it impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Not that he exists. Contextually, that he is able, that he is alive, that he can perform. God is not talking about, oh, you know, I hear these testimonies. Well, you know, I said one day, if there's a God upstairs or if there's really a God, I'll give my life to Christ. That's not conversion. 
That's a mockery to God. That's not when a man is converted. God devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. All men know there is a God. Contextually, he must believe that he is, that he's alive, that he is able to do what he said, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God knows what he is about, and he knows who needs to be in the, in the line to bring the Messiah into this world. God is faithful when we are faithless, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. He cannot deny himself, and that sometimes he will bring blessings in spite of us, and sometimes he will bring wrath because of us. He cannot deny who he is. He is a God of justice and love and grace, but he is also a God of wrath. Now that brings us to Judah's seed picturing God's redemption. Judah's seed picturing God's redemption. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he promised a great nation to come through Abraham's loins and ultimately through the tribe of Judah. And so we read now in verse 28, moreover... It took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. So the first child would be the firstborn, and the firstborn, as they were already practicing it, Moses is going to codify it, would be redeemed. Redeemed for the Lord. And so they want to make sure, since there's twins here, he's the firstborn, she puts a scarlet thread around his hand. But he pulls back in. And by the way, the scarlet thread becomes a symbol of salvation in Scripture. Remember, for instance, Rahab, who tied a scarlet thread outside the windows so that when Israel came in to conquer Jericho, that her and her family might be protected because of her faith in the living God. And it becomes a symbol that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so he pictures, Judah's seed pictures the God of redemption, who would ultimately, not through a payment like the Jew would do for the firstborn, but by literally, sacrificially giving his own son's blood as a payment to redeem us. But also Judah's seed pictures God's royalty. Judah's seed, point C there on your outline, it pictures God's royalty. We're told now, beginning in verse 28 again, let me just read it again. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So she named him Perez. Perez is a Hebrew word that means breaking through. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. That's from a Hebrew word that means to rise or to shun. And the scarlet cord, of course, is bright. It's, it's reminiscent of sunshine. The midwife had never seen anything like this before. She thought she had the firstborn fig figured out. He pulls himself back, and out comes Perez. He drew his hand back, and then this twin comes. And there's an idiom here in Hebrew. It literally means you have breached a breach for yourself. 
I mean, just blew her. Look, look how this guy came through. It's absolutely amazing. So it's Perez breaking through. You say, why is this important? What does this have to do with royalty? Everything. Because remember, God narrows the focus. Through Abraham, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Great. Isaac, he's the son of promise. Fantastic. Out of the 12 sons, Jacob is the son of promise. Fantastic. Out of the 12 sons, Judah is the tribe from whom the Messiah will come. And so when you come into the New Testament, it's not by accident that God gives the genealogy of the Messiah. And we read these words in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. But then he goes on and he reminds us, Perez fathered Hezron. Why? Because he was the firstborn. He needed to be the one from whom the Messiah would come. And you read all the way through that genealogy and you come down to verse 16. And you have Joseph's daddy, who is also named Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Not the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, because he was virgin born. By whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. It's amazing that through the physical descent of Judah and Tamar, through Perez, will come the Savior of the world. Now, what can we learn from this passage of Scripture? Let me give you three timeless lessons that kind of picked at my heart this week. Number one, a father's disobedience can have a huge effect on the life of his children. If you don't get anything else, get this. Now, if you carefully do the mathematics of Genesis, you will discover that Judah's dad, Jacob, moved uh, his family to a place called Shechem. God had wanted him to go all the way into the land of promise, but he gets to Shechem and he stops. Why? Because he's out of fellowship with the Lord. You can read all about it in Genesis. And in Shechem, he is living a compromised lifestyle. God has to break him. How long is he in Shechem? He's there for 10 years. And it had an awful influence on his family. While in Shechem, Dinah starts hanging around with the wrong crowd. And what happens? She's date raped. Simeon and Levi, they are involved in a mass murder. And then all the sons are involved in mass looting. Reuben, if you remember, he committed incest with his stepmother. Then all of the brothers, all of them agreed together to, to sell Joseph as a slave. The only sons who don't give Jacob trouble are Joseph and Benjamin. Why is that? Because when they come along, Jacob's heart is right with the Lord. And as they're growing up in the home, he is able to raise them in the manner that he should have raised the other sons. It's not by accident. Now, Judah is responsible for his own sin. He made some choices. When he decides to move to Adullam, maybe he says, I don't want the boring lifestyle around here. I want some action. And over there in Adullam, man, there's a lot of women and those guys celebrate and they have a great time. That's where we want to go. And it's a huge mistake. He loses two of his sons while he's there. Now remember, the Old Testament, the New Testament says it's written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God didn't write this just for the Jewish people. He wrote it for us living here in the 21st century. And this passage should be a warning to dads 
that you are to be a spiritual leader in your home. And if you get out of fellowship with God and you stay out of fellowship with God long enough, it can have disastrous consequences on your home. Look, you're the head of the home. You're the protective covenant covering. And when you step out of that leadership role, you are basically inviting the evil one, especially in the day that we live in. You're inviting evil right into the front door. And if you don't learn anything else from this man, please learn that sooner or later, if you step out of fellowship, you will reap the consequences. And guys, they think it's no, you know, so I like my porn. What's wrong with that, pastor? So I like my booze. We like to go out and have three or four beers. Trying to convince someone recently how evil that was, how, how, how wrong that was to use strong drink. And you've got all these pastors in America who go out and have a beer with you. And they're just ignorant. And they think, I'm ignorant. No, they're ignorant. They don't know what the Scripture teaches about strong drink. Not only against drunkenness, but strong drink. And you live with these compromised decisions in the heart. And after a while, you go far enough, you will see the fruit of it in your children. Secondly, one sin inevitably leads to another, and at last, most sins indeed are found out. So Judah, on his way to the sheep-sharing festival, going to this party of sorts, he turns aside and meets a prostitute. Why, why would Tamar be so ready? Because she knew this guy. This obviously was not his first rodeo. He, she knew this guy. She knew that he would be susceptible. He never dreamed of being involved in incest with his daughter-in-law. You know, and sometimes we're shocked when we hear what a Christian has done, especially a pastor. Look, as I told a man yesterday that I was counseling, you know, mo most marriages don't suffer from a blowout. They suffer from a slow leak. It's just a long, gradual process. Just little areas of compromise. And the wages of sin typically is more sin. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. And if you think that this could never happen to you, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, a verse we've been examining in these last two messages. And if you compromise before long, it's like you just get sucked down into a swirling vortex of sin where things get worse and worse and worse. Third, God's holiness requires that he discipline his people and that he judge the lost. God's holiness requires that he disciplines his people and that he judges the lost. We live in a day where it's common to sacrifice God's holiness on the altar of grace. And we meet these Christians who say, well, you know, we're under grace. We have freedom in Christ. You have freedom to live holy, as I do. Not to live a double life. And if you really know the Lord, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he shall reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit 
were from the Spirit reap real life. Now, you read a text like this, and you say, well, why did God strike down Ur and Onan and not take out Judah and Tamar? Because he is a sovereign God, and he has sovereign purposes, and he saw where this couple was ultimately heading. He will discipline, and he will judge. You say, well, the judgment is way out there. No, it's already happened. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's already happened. Written across your forehead is guilty. For the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. He who does not believe in him, he goes on to say, is condemned already. You're already guilty, all of us by nature. We are children of wrath, Paul will say in Ephesians 2. And if you're here and you're uncertain about your salvation, you should settle it before the day is over. And if you're live streaming in some part of the world, tune in tonight at 530. Get this settled. And if you're here on one of these campuses, come here tonight at 530. You're in grays, you should drive over. It's not that far. Get it settled. And if you've settled it, and as I've been preaching and the Spirit of God has been speaking to your heart and you know there are areas of compromise, what are you going to do about it? Oh, I'm just, you know, everything's okay, Pastor. Look, you set a railroad track and you put it off one degree. You go a mile, there's virtually no difference. But you go a couple thousand miles and you're way off track. The longer you are just a little bit off-center in your relationship with the Lord, you go far enough, and you will suffer consequences that you wish you never had. Now, Holy Father, you warned us that sometimes our sin can be visited up to the third and fourth generation of those who hate you. You are a holy God. You judge sin. You discipline the saints. You admonished us to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. So help someone today to do that. Help them to know that they cannot pay for their own sin through human effort, through works, through membership, through baptism. But you have made a payment with the precious, sinless blood of your son on a cross. And thank you that because he died for us instead of us and you raised him from the dead, demonstrating his sinlessness and his ability to pay, that you promise that whoever will call on him in faith will instantly and eternally be saved. Thank you that when you save us, you don't leave us as orphans. You send the Spirit of God to come in us to be our helper. So help us to respond to his leadership as found here in the Holy Scripture. And we ask it in Jesus' name. By way of application, first, we must remember that a father's disobedience can have a huge effect on his children. Second, one sin inevitably leads to another, and most sins are found out. And third, that God's holiness requires that he disciplines his people and that he judges sinners. To listen again to today's sermon, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program 
Reaping Moral Compromise. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling, or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.